You're listening to the SOAS Leads the Conversation podcast. In this two-part episode, we'll be discussing Islamophobia within UK institutions. In the first part of the episode, SOAS's Knowledge Exchange Officer, Katie O'Reilly Boyles, speaks with SOAS Professor Alison Scott Bauman and Matthew Guest from Durham University, two of the principal researchers on the Representing Islam on Campus project, a study that looked at the experience of Muslim students in UK universities. In the second half of the podcast, Dr. Rob For Walker speaks to Zishan Ali and Richard McNeil Wilson about recent developments in politics, the war on terror, and counterterrorism policy. Thank you very much for joining me, Alison and Matthew. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. So just to kind of kick off, do you think that your research has come at about the right time? at the moment? And if so, why is that? Yeah, that's a very good question, Katie. I mean, I think it's very pertinent that we're considering issues to do with religion and secularism on campus, issues to do with the ways in which free speech is or is not encouraged, and also issues to do with fundamental racism, but also perhaps more specifically, Islamophobia. But we can also, Matthew and I can also tell you as our conversation proceeds that, you know, this is not just about Islam and Muslims. This Our work has implications for the whole campus and for the identity of, of the modern university. So just to give you a little bit of background, back in 2012-ish, I began to become concerned that I felt there was this possibility that there were things happening on campus which made it slightly difficult for people to talk up about issues. I mean, one of the classic examples, of course, is anything to do with Israel, anything to do with Palestine. Now, that wasn't my focus, but in a way, that's a kind of a litmus test, that particular topic. So if you consider that Muslims have been kind of nominated officially as the other the alien, the enemy within. I don't think anybody would contest that now. And back in 2012, it was becoming clear to me after 20 years of working with British Muslim communities and running teacher training programs with them and working with them in their religious seminaries called Dar al-Alums. That was all building up in my mind to a conflict of interest because we know that whereas Muslims comprise about 5% of the population of this country, there's nearly you know, 8 to 9%, soon to be 10% of them attend university. It's a young population. They believe in higher education. And so you've got around probably more now, 230,000 Muslims attending um, UK universities. So if there is this pervasive, sometimes invisible to white people like us, issue about Islamophobia or at least some kind of negative stereotypes, then how does that fit with the fact that the campus is theoretically open to nearly 10% of the student population being Muslim? So that was a concern. And I put together a team, I wrote a bid, and I had no idea, maybe because I didn't have the finger on the right pulse at the time, but I didn't really realise that there would be this curveball coming to hit us, which was the Counterterrorism and Security Act. And we can talk about, a bit more about that later. So I submitted the bid for consideration in 2014. Um, middle of 2015, the money was allocated. And again, we can talk about this more in more detail later. When we started to go on campus in 2016-17, we were welcomed with suspicion because People said, well, hang on, probably you guys are connected with Prevent, et cetera, et cetera. So again, we can, we'll tell you more about Prevent as, as the conversation goes on. But I hope that gives you a little bit of a background 
about all the different tensions, religion, secularism, the minority community status of Muslims in Britain, and the fact that there are a lot of young Muslims attending university, and whether we are meeting their needs and whether we're being fair to all our university communities. Absolutely. That does, yeah, that gives a really good sort of background into kind of why the research was needed. In terms of kind of looking across across the, the channel here, you talk about the physical representations of Islam in your research often being key to a lot of the marginalisation of Muslim students on campus. So to what degree do you think that the UK could look at France's laïcité approach to enforced public secularism? Do you think that's something that the UK would ever, the current government would ever kind of consider? Or do you think that's a particularly French phenomenon? It is a particularly French phenomenon. It's a very specific, distinct aversion of the secular state, one that imagines religious identity as something that is um, at odds with public expressions of um, national identity. So in, in, in the French context, and actually this is mirrored in a number of other European countries, the uh, the burqa the, the, uh, is, is banned, it's been illegal to wear burqa, reflects the approach um, within um, the French context. Oh, yeah. he's back. So looking across the pond, um, well, not across the pond, across the channel, I suppose, from your research, you talk about physical representations of Islam often being key to a lot of the marginalisation of Muslims uh, on campus. So what extent do you think the UK could look at France's laïcité uh, approach to enforced public secularism? Do you think the UK would ever consider something like this or is it wholly a kind of French cultural phenomenon? I think it's a very distinctive um, model of the secular state, one that reflects French approach to handling religious identities, one that imagines religious identities to be at odds with expressions of national identity. It's been the case in France since 2004, for example, that uh, it's been illegal to for school pupils to wear the burqa, the Islamic garment. That's been the case since 2004. And the ban on the burqa in public places extends across a whole range of other European countries as well. The approach in France is very much one that rules out the public expression of religion as illegitimate and inappropriate within a secular state. And I can't see how this could apply within Britain. I think on moral grounds, it, it, it tends towards intolerance of Islam because religion is only acceptable if it's invisible in public spaces. In other words, if it doesn't involve the expression of identity through visible symbols or clothing or what have you. But also legally in Britain, of course, we have the, uh, the Equality Act 2010, which makes religion and belief a, a protected characteristic. And if religion and belief is to be a genuinely protected characteristic and therefore is protected from discrimination, then it really needs to be something that's accepted as a public expression of identity as well as a private. Yeah, it's also interesting, isn't it, when you consider that there is a sort of a paradox here, which is that the French anti-clericalism which came with the revolution, the various revolutions in France historically, has has led to this apparent suspicion of religious manifestations, as you've said, Matthew. But we know actually, and I've worked in France, I've done philosophical research in France, and I've worked in France a lot. It's actually a very Catholic state. You know, all the all the national holidays are still Catholic saints, 
and the Catholic universities are are supported by the state. So there is a paradox there in that uh, laicity is ostensibly the principle on which France is run, but the public spaces in France are actually, they are actually still flavoured by the religiosity of the, the remnants, if you like, which are still pretty powerful of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's different in Britain because, because Britain is fundamentally a Protestant country, but has become much more secular than Europe. If you go, if you if you go abroad, Spain, Italy, France, if you pop into a church at lunchtime as a tourist because you want to see the stained glass windows, you will probably find people praying. That doesn't happen in Britain. So I think probably for for various reasons that we've outlined here, um, including, as Matthew says, the Equality Act 2010 and the Human Rights Act 1998. This, this wooden laicity cannot really be, it's not a principle that would, could be transferred. And also it's not what it appears to be. It's, it's not, if you like, it's not what it's cracked up to be. Coming back to what you said earlier as well about the, the chilling effect on free speech, this obviously has a kind of fundamental knock-on effect in terms of equalities when we talk about the Equality Act. So there's a lot of criticism of the government's prevent strategy in your research, suggesting that it's had that chilling effect on free speech, especially among ethnic or religious minorities. So have you come across any sort of alternatives in the field of counterterrorism that you feel might be a bit more sophisticated or healthier or friendlier towards Muslim students? Or have you had any ideas of your own in that respect? Yes. So I think this is a really huge question. It's a very good question, Katie, because the assumption has built up over the centuries, and I really mean that over the centuries, that Islam is fundamentally a violent, dangerous religion. This goes back to the Crusades. It goes back to medieval times. You know, there are still pubs in this country called the Saracen's Head. There's a very, very deep-rooted, semi-unconscious assumption that this is an alien force. Now, I don't think there's any justification for that because I would suggest that although we have in this country and all over the world, we have tragically, as nations, been subjected to terrible acts of uh, violence, which are called terrorism, they are actually very rare. And they are, on the other hand, somehow built up by the media, but also often by governments to present the scenario that we are being undermined, challenged, and fundamentally perhaps even destroyed by this alien force. Now, that's actually not true. I mean, Agamben wrote about it. The philosopher Agamben uh, used this term, the state of exception, whereby you use, you deploy um, techniques which allow a government to take control because the population is in grave danger. And one could argue, I think quite plausibly, that the PREVENT legislation, the PREVENT policy, which comes from the Counterterrorism and Security Act 2015, that actually, in an apparently soft way, but Muslims will tell you it's not soft at all, it, it imposes something like a state of exception, where right across the country, it's been rolled right across the country, across all sectors of social life, there must be an alertness to the possibility of this danger. Now, this term comes from Schmidt, tellingly, who was very much in favour of the Third Reich, and who argued that a state of exception is a good idea because it does allow you to take full control. Obviously, if there is huge danger, this is necessary. But the reason why I'm going into this in some detail is because 
I don't think we can argue that there is huge danger. So in 2017-18, the stats, the statistical figures submitted to the government about how many students were referred from UK universities for potential acts of extremism, the number was 15, one five. They, were, they would have been referred to Channel, which is the sort of remedial branch of Prevent. And we know because Prevent, we know from, from other stats, Channel is quite careful at who it accepts for treatment. And Channel would have, accept, would have probably rejected about half of these. So you're talking about probably fewer than 10 students who were considered to be either at risk of being radicalised or who were, in fact, already extremists. So there's a huge disconnect between the problem as it's presented to the population of a country like this and the problem as we perceive it on university campuses. And, you know, if you're asking us for a, for a better solution, I think I'm, I mean, I hope I've given you the background of why we think these counter-terror measures are not really appropriate. It would actually be, need a radical rethink of this whole scenario of danger, of risk, in order to believe yet again, because we have done in the past, to believe that the university can be the engine for creating a positive picture, a positive narrative to go forward. There's, there's another aspect to this that is is, uh, is especially worrying, I think, and that is that Prevent took a form following the um, its review in 2011 and then when it was um, made uh, statutory in, in the uh, uh, Counterterrorism Security Act, it took a form that moved away from a kind of targeted um, intervention model, which had become popular under, under the new Labour government, where resources were put in place to intervene in communities with high Muslim populations in order to foster social cohesion and address issues of the risk of terrorism at the same time. Now, that might have been misdirected to some degree, but its replacement under the Tories has been uh, arguably far more damaging because Prevent now functions as a system of mass surveillance. So effectively what happens is there isn't a targeted intervention. All public institutions, whether they be hospitals or universities or schools or local councils or prisons, they have an obligation to pay uh, due regard to the risk of individuals being drawn into terrorism, which means they have to have a prevent strategy in place and they have to report back to the government. Now, when there's already pre-existing Islamophobia that we can find across society, giving institutions added legitimacy in identifying sources of risk um, only adds uh, to the problem. So, I mean, in that sense, prevent becomes not a source of protection, but as one, one that stokes the, the fires of, of suspicion and prejudice within within society as a whole. It's, it's, it all sounds pretty grim and it sounds pretty sort of um, embedded in in sort of central government at this point. And so you kind of touched on the fact that a lot of this counter-terrorism policy kind of arose under the Blair government and kind of was enhanced by the Tories. Do you have any comments on the those recent allegations of Islamophobia in the Tory party um, and in the Labour party actually as well? Do you see any parallels with what goes on in those party political spaces and what goes on on campuses or do you think it's a different beast? Well, I think there are some parallels. There, there are parallels insofar as the embedded forms of prejudice against Islam and Muslims can be found ac across British society. So in that sense, we wouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be surprised to find elements of it within the higher education sector, just as we find them amongst you know, members of the Tory party. We do find in universities that the counter-narratives are 
more audible and more passionately affirmed. So there's a much more of a, a sense in which prejudice is contested within universities rather than left unchallenged, um, as we often find in political parties, I think. But there's also um, a continuity there um, in the forms of prejudice and the, and the kinds of issues that are the focus of suspicion. So, for example, there's a, there's a pattern across the country that can be found in, in survey evidence, which suggests one of the strongest uh, reasons for people to be wary of Islam has to do with what it considers to be its discrimination against women. And that is something that we find amongst those students who are who are suspicious of, of, of Islam as well. But what we do find is overall the levels of wariness and suspicion uh, amongst students are generally lower than that of the general population. So there is a difference, but there is also continuity. So as you say, there seems to be a slightly lower level um, than among the general population. So are you, uh, are either of you hopeful about where we go from here? Like where, where do we go from here, building on your fantastic research and, and what, what you've done and what you found out? Does this mean that universities are the place where we need to start changing things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is so so easy so easily within our grasp because our research finds very clearly that there are plenty of mechanisms alive and well on campuses, which if they were augmented more, if they were if they were people became more conscious of them, it would make a huge difference. Just to go just to go back and contextualize what I've just said. A lot of this is about the politics of knowledge, the fact that, looking back to Immanuel Kant and onwards, the idea of the university was a place for reason. Now, that leads to conflict if you have students explicitly uh, demonstrating their faith on campus. But we there's plenty of room for this to take place because there are chaplaincy centres which are strong and can establish cross-faith friendships. Many students told us that they came to university, this is non-Muslims, came to university thinking that Muslims are probably proto-terrorists. You know, they have extremism within them, latent, ready to be brought out and activated. And then they made friends with the Muslim, either in their lodgings or in their student residences or in their class. And they realised that they're just normal people like anybody else. Now, that needs to happen more, but it's already it's already there because campuses are, are open, generally friendly places. But what we noticed also, Katie, is that this, if the, if the politics of knowledge is not managed properly if it still skews itself deliberately towards this rather strange neutral space of secularism, which is really problematic, it can lead to what we're calling a democratic deficit in the sense that all students, I mentioned right at the beginning, that our work has should have an impact on the way in which the, the future prospects of all students can be considered uh, in a more positive way. The democratic deficit is quite explicit in the sense that Many students have no clue. So 59% of students, there's over 2,000 attending 132 universities, they felt that they had never heard of PREVENT, and yet that didn't stop a good proportion of them having views about it. Of that proportion, the ones who thought that PREVENT was a good thing, building on our very brief description of it, they also seemed to hold negative stereotypes about Islam and Muslims. Now, that leads to a democratic deficit in, at various different levels, because it means, for example, that the prevent policy has not been uh, made clear to students. They are actually living under this uh, supposedly soft touch, but actually quite pervasive surveillance regime. 
without understanding fully what's going on. Things are being done in their name, which they may not wish to support. This also leads to what we are calling an epistemic injustice, which is that students who are Muslim, students who are of colour and students who look as if they might be Muslim, have a problem in various different situations of getting their opinions considered to be of equal value to those of the white population of the university campus. So this means that their understanding of the world, their understanding of the knowledge and information which is important, is considered to be inferior. So, you know, we were told often of students who were advised by their tutors that because they were practicing Muslims, they wouldn't be able to be objective about certain topics. Now, that might be true, but that would mean that that's true for all of us. In other words, secular students wouldn't be able to be objective about the principles of secularism because it is something which they live. It's it's an article of faith, if you like, in a sort of a way. We think there are many ways in which this could be improved, and they are already present on campus, as I said, but they would need to be worked at a little bit more actively. And if I'm I may at this point just say a little bit about the freedom of speech aspect. The fact is that under the Education Number no. 2 Act 1986, freedom of speech and academic freedom on universities is protected by law. And universities are advised that they must not only help that to happen, but they should actively facilitate free speech. Now, that cuts against what the prevent policy has become which is to discourage the presence on campus of external speakers who may be considered by some to be extremist, giving those people a chance to have their say and then be challenged becomes much harder. There are many ways in which the the prevent policy has actually muzzled the possibility of free speech. I mean, there are other, I don't know if you want me to talk about this a little bit, but just briefly, I would say that there are other things going on here. Um, The strength of right-wing populism means that students are being accused from outside the campus by various quite influential pundits and groups. They're being accused of either being snowflakes who melt literally at the the, the slightest whiff of a controversial idea or proto-terrorists. In other words, they're on the brink of becoming extremists. So these these extremes of right-wing populist rhetoric are quite confusing because it means that students don't necessarily, they, they just think, well, I'll just go online then. If you're telling me that whatever I say, it's going to be, it's going to be wrong. So I'll just go online with my mates uh, in my bubbles and we won't, we won't have these conversations. So there are various issues that really could be managed so much better on campus than they currently are. Thank you. That certainly gives us a lot to think about. Thank you very much, Alison and Matthew, for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. A link to Alison and Matthew's project book, Islam on Campus, Contested Identities and the Cultures of Higher Education in Britain, and the link to the adjacent report can be found on the SoundCloud page, as well as a link to Alison's new book, Freedom of Speech in Universities, Islam, Charities and Counterterrorism. Hi, my name's Rob Walker, and I'm here for SOAS Radio, talking with Zishan Ali uh, from MEND and Richard uh, McNeil-Wilson, who 
So we've all been brought together by MEND, Zishan works for MEND, and we've all met each other through MEND. Between the three of us, we've all ended up carrying out research that looks into various aspects of whether it's uh, cancer extremism or the experience of being Muslim in the UK that has led to us uh, coming across each other on multiple occasions. Richard uh, wrote his PhD around the same time as I mine. And so we'll, we'll, we'll continue. So Zishan, maybe first of all, would you like to introduce yourself and what you do at MEND? Because it sounds fascinating, the research that you've recently been doing. Yeah, of course. Firstly, thank you so much for hosting us, Rob, and to the whole SOAS team for accommodating us and making this possible. So, yeah, my name is Zushan. I'm the Senior Media Analyst at MEND, Muslim Engagement and Development. And as a background, we're basically a community-funded organisation that seeks to encourage political, civic and social engagement with British Muslim communities through empowering British Muslims to interact with political and media institutions effectively. But a big part of our work uh, we've noticed is that we have to challenge uh, structural and overt Islamophobia that frequently and inevitably acts as a barrier for British Muslim communities to enjoy their rights. My particular interest is uh, within discourse, um, how Muslim communities and minority communities are often framed in the media in political discourse, and especially in far-right discourse. So how what conspiracy theories are utilized, but also the various framings of whether it's immigrants, whether it's pedophilia, how they all come together and their impact on our society. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what I do. That's it. So, so I, th- I, I, I guess there are there are sort of there are two two strands here because you talked initially about the structural and overt Islamophobia, and well, maybe those are the two distinctions: There's the sort of structural Islamophobia, and then you went on to talk a little bit about conspiracy theories as well. So, do you see that there are there is a sort of divide there, or or do we do we bundle them all up into one one package? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, question. I think conceptually it is useful to have that distinguishment just for operations need. There is overt Islamophobia where you go on the street and we have members of the Muslim community being attacked, Muslim women having their hijab pulled off. And then you have structural Islamophobia, which uh, is essentially a system in which public policies, institutional practices, cultural representations and other uh, facets of the socioeconomic world that work together to reinforce ways to perpetuate and reinforce Islamophobia. But the boundary between them isn't strictly clean. There are multiple faces of the same dice, essentially. They all interact, they all interlink, uh, whether it's, as a very small example, whether it's Britain First and UKIP propagating a violently Islamophobic uh, narrative with their members going out on the street attacking Muslim communities. And then at the same time, their political narrative influencing contemporary political discourse. So leading to Brexit, leading to the increased securitization of Muslim communities. Yeah. So that's the, that's that's really interesting. You you make the the points about them connected because I suppose but that was one of my I suppose political awakenings around the importance of trying to understand Islamophobia in the UK was pr- prior to becoming an academic. I was a I'd be I was teach, a teacher for over a decade, and I was last latterly teaching in Tower Hamlets in East London. And there was one day in particular that 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 I remember really profoundly was. The, it was the day after Michael Gove and Theresa May had had a spat in Parliament about the Trojan horse hoax in Birmingham. And it was, and so it was the sort of first day that on the front page of every newspaper were Islamophobic conspiracy theories essentially about what was going on in Birmingham. And I came into school that day uh, in a working in a Muslim majority area. And there was a kind of chatter in the class at the beginning of in, with my form group, who were kids that I knew very well. And and it 
slowly came out or quite quickly came out that loads of the girls had saliva on the back of their hijabs. And basically, I would see that there was a, that, that, that wasn't something that happened every day to all to sort of most of the kids. But on that particular day, when there had been this kind of this horrible rhetoric going on in Parliament that was then translated into the into the media that people had consumed that morning, these were children who had who'd been spat at on the back of their heads in the street that morning I felt that I remember that at that moment it just really hit me hard that this is this is a you know a, you know it couldn't be a couldn't be more serious this issue so uh, yes yeah, so I suppose just to say that it's so it's, it's fantastic that the work that you're doing Zishan and, and with MEND as well but bringing um Richard in do you want to tell us a little bit about your uh, maybe your former research and tell us what you're working? So I am currently a research associate at the Robert Schumann Centre at the European University Institute in Florence, just on the edge of Florence in Italy. I'm there working on a on a EU Commission project, looking at looking at the construction of counterterrorism and counter extremism, how it is developed, how policy comes into being how that sort of goes through various different processes in, in different European countries, and then looking at the impact that that has on different groups, on civil rights, on minority rights in um, in different communities in different countries. I mean, this year has been very interesting because, of course, there's been lots more discussion that's been going on um, around extremism and, and counter-extremism, a lot more discussion on, on the far right within a European context and the impact that, that sort of COVID has had on that, various discussions that have come from that. I'm also working a little bit as well with the EU Commission directly, looking at how the EU and EU member states can respond to concern over the far right in a way that is less kind of security focused um, Mm. and that kind of learns from some of the mistakes from the last sort of 15 or 20 years. When you say that you're talking about the construction of counter-terrorism and counter-extremism, I sometimes find that 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 maybe is the is the distinguishing feature in conversations that one has with policymakers, where policymakers often are concerned specifically with extremism and maybe in many that's a shorthand for islam or islamism or you know problematic terms that that, like that whereas you're you're obviously trying to sort of look inwards on the eu and how how they how they construct their their narratives around that problem is is that a um is that is that something a boundary that you find difficult to cross so as you say as you're starting to work with the eu on policy type stuff do you find yourself getting drawn into uncomfortable areas working in this field at all is incredibly uncomfortable you know you have to be very careful to figure out that line because you know we we all are very critical of, of counterterrorism and counter extremism and at the same time we you know there there are these discussions that are going on and we have to find ways of kind of Desecuritizing that and and taking away, you know, the sort of the counterterrorism, the counterextremism element from the discussions that are being had. But but I think you know there, there's a lack of kind of understanding of of the way from policymakers. They they just use the information that they get, and I think it's my work is to try and change the information that they're getting to to make them much more critical of former approaches. But just going back again to the desecuritization of counterterrorism and, and CV. What, what, just do you want to explain exactly for the listeners what you mean by desecuritization? Whenever I'm having some some of these discussions, sometimes you know, and, and and I'm sure you've had this as well. We'll we'll discuss kind of the the problems with with counterterrorism and counter extremism, the problems with the war on terror ongoing and and securitization processes. And often one of the questions that will be posited back is, well, give me a good example of counterterrorism. And what's a good example of counter extremism? And I think that's a really interesting point and and an important point. It's it, because it's essentially the wrong question. It's it's not saying how do we how do we respond to and how do we understand 
instances of, of violence. What it's saying is, out of all the counter-terrorisms and the counter-extremism that we have, what is the best one? Pick, pick the best one. And actually, that's, that's the wrong question. It's, it's starting from the, the, the wrong point of view, because the, the argument that, that I think I would make is that counter-terrorism and counter-extremism as currently constructed is the wrong tool in response to, to issues of violence. And actually, we need, to, we need to look beyond that. We need to start looking at wider societal problems and the, the way in which they feed into, into violence, into, to some extent, issues of, of polarisation, into racism, into inequality, and along the way, look at how that kind of impacts on violence as well as a side product and, and kind of look at that a bit more holistically. So I think that's what I mean by discussions around desecuritizing responses to you know, instances of, of yeah. violence and, and what's called terrorism, kind of t- trying to take away some of that paradigm that's developed around countering terrorism and countering violent extremism that has grown up within this kind of war on terror context. That my experience, again, going back to when I was working as a teacher, was I had on occasion had conversations with kids who were with with sort of young young well old muslim kids or young muslim men who i was teaching sort of sixth form age who at the time before it it was the law change that became illegal would talk about traveling to take part in conflicts abroad um and as a teacher not as a counter-terrorism professional i always found those conversations um hugely valuable because i'd end up being able to discuss, empathise with those kids about frustrations about British foreign policy, about with frustrations about the war on terror, which would lead to them writing to their MPs or you know becoming democratic citizens and not going and taking part in a in a foreign conflict. And it was for me, it's the 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 invasion of counterterrorism into the classroom which stops those conversations. So it's never never possible to go back, but certainly that securitisation, if that was removed from the classroom it was the securitization of the classroom that destroyed that those positive relationships for me mm. coming back to, to to zishan so we're talking about um desecuritization you're obviously with your work looking at the far right and online communities i mean you must be you must go into some pretty dark places looking at, if you're looking at, at that online yeah, I think uh, it depends how you define dark, but far right space will cater to all really. You get the neo Nazis who are projecting hundred year old conspiracy theories that uh, everything is run by uh, members of the Jewish community and everybody, all the governments everywhere just need to get killed and there needs to be a violent overthrow. And then you have the more contemporary far right, which are tap into trends that are ongoing, whether it be BLM movement, whether it be Biden, whether it be uh, the Holland riots that are happening now, and then they use them as a piggyback. And I suppose that's, in many ways, that's how a lot of the sort of um, QAnon type of stuff that that, that was sort of I don't know how to put this, but there was swirling around Trump. It was they were sort of one one conspiracy picking off, piggybacking off another, weren't they? And and so 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 I, so that I mean bringing bringing back into this point about desecuritization, because I think there's probably the same issues at play here. That if we're talking about the far right and some of these conspiracies, I certainly speaking speaking as a former teacher, I would rather the, the example I used before was, was you know young young Muslim men, but. Equally, if kids were, were going to express a racist view, I would rather it was aired in class so that we could kind of discuss it and, and I could mediate it as a teacher than it gets kind of stamped out or, or, or pushed underground. But, but I mean, I suppose some of these, some of these far right conspiracies are, I mean, maybe they're already beyond the pale, but you know, so how, how do we, how do we address? Them? I mean, it's an impossible question I appreciate. So, so you're not going to solve it here, but, but what, what you must have had some thoughts about how you challenge these. 
Yeah, I think that's you're right. That is the million dollar question, isn't it? How do you convince someone that they're wrong? And you're right, the age old question. And I think what we have to realize is that we're coming from different premises, and we've touched on that previously. So even f- I, I have my own bias. I, I believe that we can reach out to people, whereas there are some people who believe that it doesn't matter what you do. These people are influenced by white supremacy, and this QAnon and these conspiracy theories is just the latest trend, and it will just or even if you reach out to them it will just transform into something else my personal point of view is that the issue with people like tommy robinson the issue with people like nigel farage britain first and trump is not just that they espouse islamophobia and create this network of islamophobic racist rhetoric is that they gather people and make them more amenable to uh, such rhetoric they'll make you challenge your notions of what is right what is wrong sources that you can and cannot trust then you'll be fed a diet of uh, vile rhetoric and completely biased disinformation that inevitably leads you down that uh, islamophobic route so i guess the only way that i see to challenge it effectively is not to shut them down as you suggested because again that would just prove them right rather you need to build those long-term relationships and it would be less about correcting them but trying to build bridges which is it has its pros and cons as well because yeah. we can't take the agency away is there a, a, a way that we ought to be responding to boris johnson it- your earlier question about whether we should be solely concerned with boris johnson and the like or uh, Trump has gone away, and if uh, we get rid of Boris Johnson, would everything be okay? And I think Richard uh, pointed out excellently that there are structural things that are that have led to the inevitable rise of such individuals in the political theatre. Um, people that are able to, uh, not just able to use derogatory terms against Islam, against minority communities, but in a way rewarded for it. And apart from that, I think within if we talk look at the uk context in particular and i think we're probably going to be touching upon it anyway the uk counter-violent extremism apparatus is far beyond boris johnson it's far beyond even the conservative party introduced by labor influenced by governments before then it has led to the securitization and the increased marginalization of the muslim communities which is far beyond boris johnson's role okay yeah and i think that's absolutely and and this brings us back to you know you're mentioning prevent brings us back to the islam on campus discussion that professors scott bauman and guest were having um were having, were having on, on this podcast as well and one of that one of their findings from interviewing muslims and non-muslims across university campuses in the uk was that those those students who were more aware of prevent tended to, tended to, to express more anti-Muslim or Islamophobic ideas. So it, it appeared in their data that um, an awareness of prevent promoted an anti-Muslim sentiment. So, but we've now got just filling filling people in for the independent reviewer of prevent. I'm going to put independent, you can't see, but in, in heavy bunny ear scare quotes here, um, independent review of Prevent has been appointed by the government. It's uh, William Shawcross, who is the ex-director of the Henry Jackson Society, who have faced, who have been long, long-term supporters of counter-extremism and have faced much criticism for being anti-Muslim. He was also the ex-chair of the Charity Commission. And while he was chair of the Charity Commission, he again received much, uh, much criticism for unfairly targeting um, Muslim charities. So he has a, a long history of being targeted for um, Islamophobic views or accused of having Islamophobic views. 
Um, before coming on, I was just listening to, he gave a talk at the World Affairs Council, which is a seems to be a right-wing think tank in Dallas, Texas. Bear in mind, this is the person who's been tasked with reviewing Prevent, which is people who, who are concerned about Prevent are mostly concerned that it's an Islamophobic strategy. So the independent reviewer has said, Europe and Islam is one of the greatest, most terrifying problems of our future. I think all European countries have vastly, very quickly growing Islamic populations. So he's he's making, I mean, uh, maybe Zishan, if we could uh, bring you back in here, because that to me strikes me as as following the sort of the far right trope of talking about the, the great replacement theory. Great replacement theory is actually quite an old theory that goes back decades, even centuries uh, now with this idea that it's it's inherits the idea of the white savior that the white Aryan race are the guardians of Earth, and then adds to it that as well as being the protectors of Earth, they are being invaded by a non-white force. In contemporary times, um, this has been propagated, particularly by groups like Generation Identity in Europe, uh, which have really been at the home of it, and led to the Christchurch attack, where his manifesto was actually based on the Great Replacement Theory pretty much exclusively. And the idea is that European countries and uh, European-affiliated countries, and by that I mean Australia and the US. Such countries are being invaded by non-European white individuals and by invasion they class any way of trying to create a larger majority of non-whites, whether that's by force and uh, one of the things they actively try to propagate is the idea that even if Muslims aren't attacking us on the street, they're trying to be they're being malicious and they're creating their uh, increasing their birth rates, they're trying to take over towns and our politics. So, in, in a nutshell, but I think but I think this is this is um, it's just interesting that this person who you know has um, a history of of being criticised for making Islamophobic is very overt talking about growing Islamic populations. I'm that's, I'm quoting him there, so growing yeah. populations, which which does strike me as, as is fitting in, maybe not 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 going the whole hog, but it certainly fits in quite well with this this fear of, of of increasing Muslim populations. He he also finishes his speech that I was just listening to where where he he having talked about the war on terror and also you know this these issues of these European issues, he says we we must take morally hazardous actions to preserve our civilization, which which doesn't doesn't fill me with hope that this is someone who's going to incredibly uh, ominous. It is, yeah, right. It's, it is just this sort of om- ominous idea. So, I mean, so there's, 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 in summary, there's this person who many people who are sort of critics of Prevent, who have called for a review of Prevent, are now going to find very problematic. Certainly, any hope that the concerns about the inherent racism of Prevent are going to be taken seriously, are, you know, those, those are, those are really big concerns now. I think, I think it's, it's reasonable to think that those concerns are not going to be taken seriously. So how do how do you think we, um, Richard? I know this might be going slightly off piece for you, but I know you're familiar with Prevent from from your past research. You know, how 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 do you think that one ought to respond to this appointment? In all senses, what what Shawcross is saying is very shocking. But in some senses, it's it's not awfully surprising considering the discussion that's been going on within the the confines of the war on terror. I mean, we have spent the last at least 10 years, governments have spent the last at least 10 years, linking discussions on migration, linking discussions on immigration to 
to terrorism, to concerns about terrorism, to concerns about violent extremism. So in some sense, some of what he's expressing is, is incredibly mainstream within this discussion, within, within, within counter-terrorism, counter-extremism. We have, we've, we've had this language of, of concern about migrants coming in from, from Syria being terrorists, despite there being no evidence of it. We've had this, this recently, the 2019 um, counter-terrorism and border security bill, which explicitly linked the concept of terrorism to securing our borders. You know, we've 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 spent 10, 20 years, governments have spent 10, 20 years saying that terrorism is the biggest problem facing the West. They've created this construction of, of, of terrorists being being Muslims. And of course, whilst that, that may be changing with, with much more focus on the fire right now, it still prevails in, in some senses. You know, there's still that construction there. It's still built on that construction. And it, now there seems to be even more focus on 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 concern about immigration, migration, and, and integration, not just in in the UK but throughout all of Europe at the moment, and and that links to terrorism. So I really i i i don't i don't think i don't think these these are are particularly shocking. I don't think his appointment is particularly shocking because it's it's part of a, a trend of of securitizing migration um, within 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 terrorism and counterterrorism. And also it's part of the trend of this government, particularly of, of just not taking these concerns seriously, not engaging with these concerns um, and attempting to, to, you know, what looks to be to kind of spike reviews of things which they don't want to, to be negative or to reflect negatively on them. And I, and I think this is, um, I think you're absolutely right to say it's not, that, yeah, I think it's important to say this is not surprising. Well, something that came up when I was just looking into Shawcross is that, you know, these, these are fairly, you know, these are views that are shared by many people. If you want to, you know, consider him as, as as an establishment figure, you can't get much more establishment than he he was the official biographer of the Queen Mother, which which sort of shows you how kind of you know, almost how how British this is to have these concerns. And I think it's also right that that we we ought not to get hung up on Shawcross, and there are two reasons for that. One is that if we get hung up on Shawcross as an individual, then we're not talking about the structural problems that we're trying to address. That just sort of takes up everyone's energy and also it it sort of feeds into the and maybe this this is going to come back to you Zishan. i don't know if you're in your research you've come across the um you know concerns about free speech speech to the kind of the moral panic around free speech that's generated by the by so maybe maybe the far right i don't know if we actually just say the right because if one were to sort of start making a noise about you know boycotting the review because of shawcross i i, I personally probably won't be engaging with the review but if you were to make too much of noise about sort of boycotting the view, then you play into this kind of idea of sort of liberals and lefties who are who are no platforming and aren't interested in, in free speech. So, do you have you come across those sort of those those issues around free speech, Lishan? I think uh, yeah, definitely. Unorth- if, if I go down an unorthodox route, I, I would have to say I may have to defend the far right in this point that they they I wouldn't say they're the originators of this idea that we're being victim victimized. I think that's a very central right wing and a, a lot of politicians across the spectrum would utilize this approach. The far right in recent years and the right wing governments in particular have expertly operationalized this. But yeah, it's a, it's a huge thing. But again, even if we look to the Conservative Party, even if we look to Conservative councillors and MPs, they have said some incredibly uh, racist, Islamophobic rhetoric, and they would u- frequently utilize the banner of satire, the banner of freedom of speech to defend their rhetoric, and any criticism would be would be dismissed. And you mentioned Boris Johnson and all of the remarks he made. 
um, and the satire he, he espouses essentially. But those words also have like huge impact when he called like a world women bank robbers uh, within the within men within our islamophobia reporting unit we saw a huge rise of islamophobia within that same week within days within hours so even though in the far right you do have this tendency that everything we're saying is right um and anyone who tries to attack us is trying to censor us it's not a uniquely far right thing i'd say it's a very right wing thing and it's been operationalized by very mainstream establishment figures. And, that, and that's interesting. I think that I'm going to follow that that trajectory. So we've gone from the far right, we're moving through to the to the central right. And obviously, I think it's important. With, now we're talking about you know UK political parties. If we move across the spectrum, the there have been concerns about Islamophobia raised about Labour under Keir Starmer. And I mean, I think not, not letting other political parties off the hook. I mean, the, the Greens had an issue around Islamophobia with one of their quite senior candidates at a, at a previous election. And so, so are, there, are there any political parties that are actively hospitable to Muslims in the UK? Um, would I would you say so? Maybe this is more more your area, but Richard, you can come in if you'd like. Yeah, I think uh, Richard may be able to talk about this as an academic and outside the advocacy sector. Within our work, within men's uh, work, we follow a bipartisan approach. So we reach out to all political parties and enjoy relations with all of them. And I would say uh, I would I, pre- I would preface my answer by saying that I wouldn't say uh, any individual political party is completely Islamophobic and they should be just banned. I would say there are uh, particular political parties that have, you know, issues with Islamophobia, and there are political parties with more issues of Islamophobia. And you raise the point of, you know, Labour's Islamophobia problem. It'd be good to mention that it was under the Tony Blair government that prevent and a lot of these ideas were actually founded or originated, really. But I think Richard will be better placed to talk about the history around that. But yeah, I agree in the sense that there are all the major party political parties have an issue with Islamophobia. And that's because within our uh, political establishment currently, it's okay to it's it's okay to propagate Islamophobia. You get rewarded by it in the grass. You get grassroots support, and you don't really get any blowback uh, within Parliament and within your wider political party. Yeah. As an example, the government hasn't even I would say it hasn't even attempted to try and define Islamophobia. They have initiated a so-called inquiry, but there have been no updates since 2019. So it just shows that tackling Islamophobia isn't in the national agenda on a political level. And it's very... There are some political parties that are doing some great work, whether it be SNPs, whether it be Plaid Camru in Wales, even the Green Party, they're doing some excellent work in tackling Islamophobia, but there are still issues. And I, and I think that's, so I'll, I'll just, I'm going to jump in and then ask, ask Richard to, to comment on that. But I think that the, it's, it, it seems to me it's very clear that if you have these kind of national political agendas, that inevitably the, the there ends up being another created. And in kind of 21st century Britain, uh, that is, and globally, that seems to be, you know, the, the other is the Muslim. Um, I think it, that's kind of un, undeniable. So, and it's almost that it, we sort of saw momentarily when when Labour swung to the to the left to a sort of more sort of maybe old fashioned left internationalism that that kind of that othering was about was abandoned for for a moment. But it certainly does does seem seems to be back back again. Um, 
But um, Richard, would you like to sort of comment on that on the you know UK political parties and, and maybe the, the late Labour? You know, is 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 there is there an Islamophobia problem across the political parties, or you know, any comments that you got on that? Yeah, if, if may, uh, sorry, if I may quickly interject, point about you know Islamophobia being or Muslims being the other and stuff. I think we should also be careful that and remember in history that there always is uh, the other. The current punch bag is the Muslim communities, but we should remember any minority community can be easily substituted for the Muslim communities. So the issue isn't strictly for the Muslim communities in particular, but for all minority communities. As an example, I'll quickly give in the Telegram chat in Tommy Robinson's Telegram chat. It was yesterday that they posted a um, an article uh, or a post against MEND, my organization, and they called us Islamists and stuff. And actually, a lot of the comments by the followers, actually, I would say there was not any comment that was Islamophobic, no comment actually targeted Islamophobia Muslims. They were incredibly racist and anti-Semitic in nature. And it just shows that for a lot of these groups, for a lot of this ideology, with white supremacy at the center, Islamophobia is the current way it's expressed, but obviously it's not the only way. And and I, think just, just worth, I think that's a really good point, and putting this in a historical context, that we have talked about the anti-Semitism of the far right, and and that these are, you know, as, as you talk about this othering, is a, it's a sort of historical constant of different nationalist political movements creating another and you know, taking a moment to remember the Holocaust and the awful, you know, awful things that happened under Nazi Germany, but also to be to be aware of shadows of that that we live with today on, on many levels. But Richard, sorry, we we're, we're going to bring you back. Yeah, one of the things I think is is quite illustrative of of the dangers of 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 liberal Islamophobia. You know, the Islamophobia that we have within a lot of liberal circles, as 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 Baroness Vazi says about about the idea of, of Islamophobia passing. The, the, the dinner table test, you know, the, it being acceptable in in liberal circles is is the um, is the discussion that that's been going on over the last few years of a grooming gang. I mean, this was something that was first kind of really focused on in in, in mainstream politics in the UK through a, a Labour Party MP who who wrote that Britain has a problem with British Pakistani men raping and exploiting white girls, and this was kind of picked up. This was picked up by various different kind of groups, right wing groups liberal groups, uh, but also far-right groups as well. It was also picked up, incidentally, by Quilliam, for instance, by the self-professed counter-extremism think tank, who released a, a largely kind of quite debunked report, which kind of also looked at, pounded this idea that British ha- that Britain has a problem with British-Pakistani men raping and exploiting white girls. And, and we sort of follow that trail along, you know, we follow how that, that discourse, that liberal Islamophobic discourse, and which also infiltrated counterterrorism, goes on. And we arrive in, in March 2019 in New Zealand, um, where the, the Christchurch attacker who, who walked into mosques and, and massacred Muslims in, in New Zealand, who, who were praying, and, and he, he went in on, on, on his, his gun, on his automatic rifle, was written the words for Rotherham. You know, and, and in some of his discussion in, in, in his agenda that he, he wrote online, he mentioned discussions about Rotherham, he mentioned discussions about British-Pakistani men, about concepts of, of great replacement, about Muslim violence um, that, you know, have been seen in discussions on, on, on Muslims and, and counterterrorism. And now, of course, you know, we finally we're, we're at this point where a lot of that kind of has been debunked. A lot of the discussion over that is, has kind of moved on a bit and, and we see there isn't really, wasn't that problem there. 
but that it was created within within circles of liberal Islamophobia and and you know center center left Islamophobia, and that has an impact. It impacts on on far right extremism. It it legitimizes far right extremism and and violence. And I think that that's really kind of an, a useful way of looking at, at how these these discourses can infiltrate the far right and, and give give credence to the far right. Mm. The in- interesting connection to be made here, because you mentioned about Quilliam and they, as you say, they wrote this grooming gangs report, and that was a case study in the in how sort of media media and moral panics start mm. off because they wrote this report, as you say, any actual genuine academics or researchers who who are looking into this area rapidly debunked that report. Yet it was already being taken up, being run by run on primetime news, being taken up, being on on the front page of newspapers, even after it had been been debunked. But interestingly, the development a couple of weeks ago, so Majid Nawaz, who was one of the founders of Quilliam, who has an LBC radio show, talk show, um, he's a talk show radio host. He he sort of had, um, he's taken legal legal action, or he's threatened legal action against people for accusing him of being a, what was it, a conspiracy theory propaganda shock jock, I think, uh, with what people were accusing him of. Him of. But interestingly, um, there have been a couple of fairly high-profile people have left Quilliam. And off, off the back of Majid Nawaz, was, he was kind of promoting some of Trump's ideas, some sort of Trumpian ideas, and was expressing support for the people who invaded the Capitol building in the U.S., um, which led to some of the some of the some of the high profile people leaving Quilliam. So that's that was an interesting connection, I think, between the the, the far right and the the liberal voices on the left, which I think is perhaps what's happened in the US with with Biden is that the some some liberals have had to had to sort of disavow some of the Islamophobia that they pre, they might previously have supported. So I suppose that's sort of one 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 positive perhaps a hope, hopeful thought. So I'd just like to say thank you so much. We've covered a huge amount of ground here from, you know, prevents British political parties, US politics. Zishan's really interesting um, research looking into the far right. I mean, it's, 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 really, it's really interesting to hear about that because that's not, not an area that I often spend a lot, a lot of time looking into. So that's been, been fascinating to hear about and um, hopefully making some connections with the Islam on Campus research. Um, just like to say thank you so much for um, all of the work that you're doing. I know that Zishan is uh, doing some great work for MEND and with, with MEND, challenging Islamophobia, and also Richard in the EU trying to, as you were pointing out, trying to encourage, I don't know, how successful you ever feel that you are, but it's good to get the voice voice out there. Encourage the desecuritization of these more sort of toxic policies that you're looking at. So, and thanks very much for your for your time today as well. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Sous Leads the Conversation. You can find links to all of the guests' work in the show description. 